elders here. I'm not Gary Nock, our normal pastor, our normal abnormal guy. Uh, Gary was on vacation. Oh, Gary still is on vacation. Well, I think so. Um, I saw a guy this week, talked to a guy this week that looked and sounded a lot like Gary, but he said he was spending his vacation remodeling a bathroom. And that just doesn't sound like something a normal person would do on their vacation. So if you can, pray for Gary that they would make it home or that uh, whatever madness has consumed him that he wanted to remodel a bathroom on a vacation, that that would go smoothly and easily. Uh, it just seems very odd to me. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Of course, when you add a, a wife into the mix and remodeling the bathroom, that might make more sense. Yeah, let's go with that. That makes sense. Anyways, um, I'm one of the, the elders here, and uh, uh, I'm also the city manager of our community. And so leadership is very much at the core of everything I do, and leadership has been at the core of really everything I've been about since I was 14, um, which not coincidentally was the year that I was saved. And leadership is what I kind of want to talk about this morning because leadership is important. Leadership is the thing that defines success and failure spiritually. It's what defines success and failure economically, politically, in your family, in everything. It all comes back to leadership on some level. And so as we're, oops, not yet. Um, as we go through this, um, what I want you to be thinking about is we're going to look at some biblical things about leadership and what the Bible, specifically what the Apostle Paul had to say to his buddy Titus about leadership and take a look at some different things about leadership. Now, this is a generational thing. I said I became and I had my first opportunities in leadership when I was 14. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, I'm exempt from this. No, this is generational. God uses you at whatever age you are and can use you and do you, things in you now that might pay off immediately or they might pay off, you know, 30 years from now. You don't know. But the Bible speaks to all of us. It doesn't just speak to old people or a certain kind of person in this. So kind of be engaged on this. Leaders, if I was going to split, which I am, Leaders into two categories, type one and type two, styles of leadership, not their politics. So any of you that are big Trump fans or anti-Reagan people, don't sharpen your pitchforks. I'm talking about their style of leadership. There are two general styles of leadership. There's the bold individual, and there's the team leader. First type, these are two great examples of the bold individual. Donald Trump and Douglas MacArthur, depending on your generation, that might mean something or not mean something to you. But these are both people that are very solo leaders. They lead from their core of themselves. They have a vision that they articulate, very much self-centered. And they're not distracted by things that get in the way. They're going to pursue that vision. Critics will roll off their back. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that's bad or good. I'm saying this is a style of leadership that they will pursue and they will stick to it. They are not going to give up. They will persevere no matter what's going on because they have been given or have inside them a certain kind of vision for whatever that leadership style is. The second type of leadership is the leader as a coach. And the examples that are good for this, I try to keep, stick with presidents and generals, okay? Uh, Ronald Reagan... 
was a very different president than President Trump is right now. And General Eisenhower is a completely different general than General MacArthur was. Now, the leader as coach is more of the chief inspirer. They will lead by example. They will make a team, and they will build a group of people around them that will do a lot of the work. They will not be the, the single individual leading from the front. They will kind of lead from the side or lead from the back. Now, as humans, in our leadership, you need a little bit of both, okay? Recognize that when I generalize, it's a generalization, right? There are times in my life I need to be a MacArthur, and there's more times sometimes I need to be more of a Reagan. But it fluctuates, and people are all a mix of the two, but we're generalizing. What we have is recognize something. The bold individual makes a better movie. The bold individual makes for a great story. And in pop culture and in fiction, you think about the leaders, they tend to be that bold leader, right? Luke Skywalker did not stop and have a committee meeting, okay? Han Solo does not stop and think about how we can empower Chewbacca to help pilot the, no. And so we tend to idolize the bold leaders a little bit because we see them in pop culture. It's a simpler argument. We tend not to recognize the leader as the team. I mean, Reagan was such a team guy, he was able to have the team work while he took naps in the Oval Office. And it, it, the, the government functioned well because it had a good team. Um, the other problem is, besides that we kind of overly emphasize one in our culture, is one tends to be long-lasting in terms of their impact, and one tends to be shorter-lasting. The bold individual tends to, not always, but tends to produce results that are very much tied to their leadership. And when they retire, go away, that whole, their whole program goes away with it, whereas the coach leader, the one that has a team, tends to produce something that goes past them, tends to go on past their death even, and continues on. The question for today is, since we're studying the book of Titus, which one is more Christ-like? Which one is more what the biblical terms for leadership are? Jumping ahead, it's type two. What we see in the Bible is the leader as the chief inspirer, the leader as the coach, the leader as the guy on the side empowering others is what we see in the Bible, and that tends to be the more long-lasting leadership type. Now, that again, that's style, not their politics, okay? Ronald Reagan did say, though, this nice quote, the greatest leader is not necessarily the one who does the greatest things. He is the one that gets the people to do the greatest good quote. People are complex, and we need to look at Christ-like leadership. And the way we're going to do that today is look at leadership through the lens of the Apostle Paul in his letter to Titus. And it's good to do that because leadership's important. Holding fast to the faithful word of God is what the, our theme of the book of Titus is about. And quick review, because context is something I like to do. Um, Paul wrote this letter for three main themes. Do you remember those themes? Are they written right there? Good, okay, good. You, this, is, this is participatory. Feel free to shout these things out. Um, author of the book of Titus, nice picture. Paul, the receiver of the book of Titus. It's kind of easy, good. Okay, I like to have good, easy ones. If you can all get that one. I, that, I liked that when I was in the pew. That was like, oh, yeah. Um, setting for this is Crete. Do you remember anything about Crete? Was Crete a bunch of really serious, committed, honest people? No, these were people that were known for being kind of lazy and being very dishonest. So 
Paul was telling his partner, Titus, go to this place that's kind of like Las Vegas. They're, they're not real into Christianity. And churches were there already, but he wanted them to keep going. And so we read, Eric had read for us the, the verse that kind of sets that all out and had the really important words in it. And last week we threw this up here as our key verse. And then we come to today's theme, the essential question for what I'm talking about today, the, the question you should be able to answer at the end of this, chapter 1 of Titus, are there biblical qualifications for leadership? Yes, there are. There's about 26 listed, and a bunch of them right in the book of Titus. We're going to take a look at that today. In fact, today is a, a sermon that's basically around one verse or even one word of one verse. Um, it's also, I want to share a little bit of where the elders' hearts are. Uh, a lot of you don't have a chance to kind of come to an elder meeting, nor do you probably want to necessarily, but uh, I want to share you a little bit about kind of what the elders do, what the elders worry about, where our hearts are at, and go through some of that with you, because I think it's important that you know what's going on, because as I've mentioned once or twice, leadership is important. So, let's take a look at this. Let's dig in. Real quick, um, on our you're taking notes, we're kind of starting off, that was the first bit there. Um, digging in, the structure of chapter one, there's two parts to it. One part is this real simple, Paul greets Titus, there's greetings, there's his credentials, and he gives the mission to Titus. This is what you do. So one part's just kind of general stuff and the mission, and the second part are the qualifications for leadership, because the mission Titus has is to appoint elders and set things in order. And then Paul says, okay, if you're going to appoint elders, here's your qualifications. Um, and that's a big deal. Last week we looked at a couple words. Oh, yeah, see, there, there you can take notes even easier now. I can remember what I did. Uh, if we look at this part of the passage, last week we looked at two words. We looked at child and set in order. And child meant a close relationship, like a partner. And set in order meant continue to put things in order. Things had already been started in Crete, and Titus is to keep that going on, make it move forward properly. And today, we're going to look at just one word, and that's this one, elders. That's good, because it's about leadership, and leadership is important. So elder, if you want a little Greek, presbuteros, which is where we get the term Presbyterian from. Want to make it a little bit confusing? Paul uses a lot of terms, and it all means the same thing. He also used the same term overseer and um, what we would call bishop and elder. All mean the same thing, even though Paul uses different words. And that's okay. An elder is somebody who oversees. An elder is somebody who is also a bishop, and a bishop oversees. They're all talking about either the same office or kind of what they do. And getting a translation for that can be a little difficult, because we've overlaid our own feelings on this. And in America, we've made our churches kind of resemble the government a little bit and how they do the, the leadership. And the term elder, you might hear that and you think of, well, like an old guy. And that's also how it's used. And if you hear the term presbyteros, you think, oh, a Presbyterian thing. And the word bishop actually is episkopos, which is where we get Episcopalian church. And bishop... You might think of the Catholic Church, where it's a, a very important office in the Catholic Church. You kind of need to put that all out of your mind and go back to, what did Paul mean? The author meant something, and he had a definition when he wrote it, and it means only one thing to him. 
That's when we talk in the church. The Bible has only one interpretation. Lots of application. But the one interpretation is this. This is what Paul meant. And it's shepherd. The best translation for you and I to understand what Paul meant is shepherd. Or guardian, maybe, is a, a good term for that. And an elder is a man who oversees or shepherds a church. Okay? And you'll find, and this is on your notes already, that the man, that is the shepherd guardian, has four duties. They are to lead or protect the body. I'll go in the right order here. How about that? They are to feed the body. They are to lead the body. And they're to care for the body. And there's biblical references for all that on your notes if you want to look those up. And I would encourage you to look those up. You know why? Leadership's important. Good to know that. Um, in America, we have this thing where we want to put our American government into our church. We think that we elect elders and that the elders represent the people, kind of the way that a city council member represents the people or a board of directors represents the shareholders of a company. And that's not in the Bible. In the Bible, the elders represent God to the people. And the elders are God's representative for caring and shepherding on the earth. And I want to just maybe make a quick distinction here. Um, there are elders that you see in America that are, are board elders. And there's elders that you see as shepherd elders. And the distinction between the two looks like this. Board elders do 95% of their work at meetings. What does a board elder do? They go to meetings. When they're doing their elder duties, it's at a meeting. They make decisions. People come to them and say, hey, we want to start this. What do you think? And the elders get together and go, eh, eh, whatever. Okay, their, their actions, their duties, they all take place at meetings, and their focus tends to be a political model. They'll refer to themselves as the board. They will vote on things, and their decision-making thing is usually generally about authority. Who's in charge? Um, some of that's attractive because it's much more efficient than other forms. Many great churches use this model, and they are good, godly churches. There's nothing wrong with this model per se, except that it's not the biblical definition. The biblical model is shepherd. And in shepherding elders, 95% of their work is done in ministries. It's not at a meeting. It's with people. When they're eldering, to use that term, they're with somebody. They're with a worship team. They're with a life group. They're with a person. They're teaching somebody. They're discipling somebody. They're with a life group. They're active with the body the way that a shepherd of sheep is with the body of sheep, right? Kind of you can put that parallel together on that. Um, they also function, and we see this in the Bible, in what's called plurality. Uh, many churches have the board elders. It's hierarchical. And it's usually the pastor is the top guy. And then there's like, sub-pastors, like missionaries. They're like almost as holy as the pastor, but not quite. And then there's like elders, and then there's like deacons, and you work your way down. And whatever the pastor says goes. That model fosters type one leadership, bold individual. And in fact, if you read the news and follow church actions, you can see where churches like get in turmoil when a pastor has to resign or retires or leaves, and everything gets all torn up, and it's all chaotic. Shepherd elders, it's plurality. The pastor might be the most important person there when we're talking about a doctrinal issue, 
but when we come to some other issue, it might be a different elder that is most important. And that there's not voting exactly as there is persuading, convincing, coming together, consensus, and following God's leading and seeing what happens with that. It's much slower, but it's much more godly. And you tend to make much more safer decisions, but it functions in plurality. Our church is a, a shepherd elder, shepherding elder church. Gary is one of the elders. He happens to be the elder that does primarily as the teacher. He's the only paid elder, but he's just one of us. And, I mean, yes, when Gary speaks, we listen very closely because it's Gary and he's very wise. But sometimes we listen to somebody else who's wise because it depends on the context of what the conversation is, which is a long way of saying our church tries to follow the biblical model as closely as we can because leadership is important. So that's what it says in Titus about leadership, and that's kind of what our elders do. And in fact, the elders spent a lot of time studying this. There's a, probably the best book, if you're interested in reading extra stuff, on biblical eldership. In fact, that's the title, Biblical Eldership. Uh, it's a guy by name Strauch wrote this. We spent, I think, four months going through this on Saturday mornings um, as a group of elders to the point where... Um, we got to know this pretty well, and then we redesigned our church constitution, our bylaws, to reflect what the Bible says about leadership. Um, we've included on the back of your notes, if you were to flip those over, I'll wait. All of the qualifications for eldership in our church. If you were to look at that paragraph that says qualifications, and then you were to look back at uh, Titus, you might see some things that are very similar. In fact, there's three books of the Bible that deal with these uh, qualifications, and you find them right here. Uh, 1 Timothy, uh, Titus 1, that we're talking about now, and 1 Peter, all have the qualifications for elder. And if you look at our qualifications, they're all of those put together, and we eliminate the parallel ones. Okay, And that's how we try to function on that. I would say that... Um, Comfortably, you could study every one of the qualifications and spend a day in a sermon studying them. They're all worth your study because leadership is important. One example, husband of one wife. You might read that and say, oh, you can't be a polygamist and be an elder. It's not really what that means. You dig into it, which we did. It took several weeks. It was kind of a long one, actually. That would be best translated as a one-woman kind of man which is dealing with character, not necessarily, well, I mean, multiple wives, is, that's not legal either, but um, it's the character of the person. And there's implications for that in our church about leadership that are much more biblical, but maybe don't um, follow some other conventional things that you might be used to. The goal is to hold fast the faithful word of Christ. Paul is being very deliberate in telling us what the qualifications for eldership are. Those aren't general, right? Those are specific. And they all have deep meaning, and that's what we're trying to follow. And this is kind of an aside, but in general, in life, God is a God of specifics. He's a God that's very direct and to the point, and it's real clear. He's not a generalist. I have to deal with a lot of criticism in life. My job entails a lot of people who are mad at the government, usually the federal government, but we're local and they can come to me. I get criticism. There are critics who are like, well, I just don't like the way you guys are running the city. Well, what do I do with that? Okay, 
uh, what would you like to do? Well, do it better. Okay. That's where you usually end up just smiling and letting them talk themselves out. And, you know, you go. Now, when somebody comes in and does that, it's kind of like, okay, I'm just going to let them vent and take it and see what I can do. Somebody comes in and goes, hey, I don't like the way your police department did this, 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 at this time, on this date, with this thing. Well, that gets my attention because it's specific. God is a God of specifics. Satan always accuses in generalities, which is not to say critics are being satanic, but it's what we want to do is think about how the Bible was designed. When God speaks, it's real clear. Believe and you're saved. Want to be an elder? You've got to be these qualifications. He gives it to us, and it's clear. It's not general. And that's just a good thing to kind of keep in the back of your mind as you go through things. Paul is very specific, and it's worth our taking time to hold fast to the word when we talk about leadership, because leadership is very, very important, as I might have mentioned once or twice. At Grace Point, we try to design everything around that. It is, if you look at those qualifications, a very high and very difficult calling to be an elder. In fact, I'd say it's impossible. Eldering is impossible. Being a pastor is impossible but for God. The Holy Spirit is the difference between a group of people that are doing the best they can and a group of people that are empowered by something that can take place that's miraculous. It is miraculous when we were saved, and it's miraculous to be empowered to a ministry. And for me, the most exciting part is, is it's different tomorrow than it is right now. Well, maybe not tomorrow exactly, but as we go through life, that process of sanctification, when we're justified, we're sanctified, or the sanctification thing, it's an upward mobile thing. It's a, it's a thing where as I go grow as a Christian, I'm much closer to Jesus now than I was way back when. And you look back and you go, man, that was stupid. But I also look forward going, man, I got a long ways to go. And not anything else in life is like that. That's exciting for me. So, at Grace Point, type one versus type two leadership. Oh, there's our qualifications. Holding fast. Sorry, I got a little behind there. We are trying to be not the bold individuals. This is not Gary Knox's church. It's certainly not my church. This is God's church. And God functions with a group of people, and the group of people function together, and they're shepherds, trying to be the best they can to try to be shepherds. And Paul, when he penned this book under the influence of the Holy Spirit about 2,000 years ago, it is still relevant today. Last week, we learned how Titus is relevant today in China and what Paul's doing in China. It's relevant today on how we run the leadership of this church and how we hold what's important and hold fast to what God has told us. This is how it's supposed to be organized. It was true in Crete in A.D. 64. It's true in Ephrata, Washington in 2018. That's pretty cool. So question for you. You are a leader, every one of you. You might be a leader in your home. You might be a leader in your workplace. You might be a leader of just a couple people. You might be a leader at a pool. You could be a leader on a worship team. You might be a leader of just yourself. You might work with leaders. Which type of leader are you working on? Are you more the bold individual, or are you more of the coach? When you're at work, which type of leadership are you 
encouraging in your boss? Are you encouraging your boss to be a screamer and a yeller and a type one? Are you encouraging your boss to function in plurality? Those are things that by leadership, whether or not you have the title of supreme commander of whatever, is kind of irrelevant because we're all involved either as or working with a leader and we all have a role in supporting leaders, being a leader, encouraging other leaders. Those are good questions to ask. You know why? Because leadership's important. If men would come forward, we are going to move to a thing that the church was also, in terms of leadership, encouraged to do. And part of us holding fast to the faithful word is to follow what is stated in the Bible for what church is to be about. One of those things is the remembrance of uh, some people call the Lord's Supper or communion. Communion where the church communes together to remember Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to do this morning. They did that in AD 34 for the first time, and we do it today. They did it in the Holy Land, and we do it in churches. It was done last night, by our reckoning, in Macau, went all the way around the world. And now we're kind of wrapping up on the planet Earth as the day passes of remembering the Lord. Communion has been performed on nuclear submarines underneath the ocean's ice caps. It's been performed on the surface of the moon. It's part of being a Christian, and it's about coming together to remember Jesus Christ. And that's an important thing for us to do. We teach at Grace Point that this is remembrance, that the grape juice and the pie crust you're going to eat are tools. There's no magic in them, okay? There's no grace imparted to you by the eating and the consuming. It's a tool to help us remember that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And that's why we're here together to do that. Um, we believe that this is for believers. Um, we're not going to check your Christian card. Uh, but I would ask you, if you're not a believer today, just observe and consider. Um, parents, up to you. Whether your children are, are ready, that's entirely up to you. We don't have a, a stance on that. Um, but it's a time to remember. It's a time for us to remember who we were before Jesus came to us. We were sinners, right? Whether we were one year old, well, five years old, 85 years old, before Jesus came to us, we were destined for destruction. But God. But God revealed himself, and we believed, and it changed everything about us. And so this is time to remember that. And the Bible says we're to do this carefully. So I'd like to just pause for a minute. Uh, to time for a little silent prayer. Uh, if you have things that need to get right in your life uh, that you need to ask forgiveness for, now is a good time to do it before we do communion. I need that before we take communion. And so I'll just have a little time of silent prayer, then we'll move on through the service. Our guide from um, how to do this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And Jesus, it's the last night he was with the apostles. In the upper room, they're having dinner together, not a piece of bread and some grape juice, but a full meal. And he reached onto the table and he grabbed the two most common elements, wine and bread. And I've, you've, if you were here, I, I taught through what wine and bread mean in the Christian church and civilization at large. But Jesus said, well, Paul says, quoting Jesus, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took the bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'm going to ask Tobin to stand and give thanks for the bread this morning. You hold in your hand a, a morsel of bread. Bread is universal across the planet. Some form of it might be rice-based, but uh, in our case, wheat. Uh, bread was the start of civilization. It's made up of a lot of little things, but it comes together, and it's common, and it's the foundation for almost everything. And Jesus did not pick that at random. He picked it because of that as the foundation. And this to represent, remember, his body. And I like to do communion a little differently as you're used to. If you would stand, because I think when we're supposed to be doing this together, I like us to be together a little bit. And, um, and this can get confusing right and left, but if you put the bread in your left hand and reach out to someone nearby with your right hand, this is awkward for me because I'm on the wrong side of these guys right now, but um, just touch a little bit. It, you don't have to be you know, perfectly doing this, but I like us to be united in body as we do this together. So we're here to do this to remember Jesus. We're doing it together as a church. Do this in remembrance of him. And you can be seated. In the same way, 
He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I'll ask John to give thanks for the cup this morning. Wine also has deep cultural meaning in the Christian church. Crushed grapes was celebratory. It was the first miracle that Jesus ever performed. And again, Christ didn't grab the cup of wine just randomly. It meant something. It had deep meaning. And it's to remind us of the blood. It's to remind us of the forgiveness and the covering of his grace upon us that makes us able to stand before our Lord and Savior with complete confidence. And when Satan accuses us, we can just look at Christ and say, no, the price was paid in full. Paid in full. So if you would rise again. I'll move to the correct side. Wine in the left, oh, grape juice in the left hand. Reach out with your hand. Touch somebody. Be the church in contact with one another. Let's remember Jesus Christ together this morning.
and you can be seated. So we've done more than remember Jesus, though. The Bible tells us, in fact, the next line in that entire discussion is, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. The covenant, that there's a promise, a one-sided contract that Jesus fulfilled every part of. And Paul tells us, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Meaning, as a church, we have proclaimed to anybody who witnessed it or anybody who hears about it that we believe Jesus Christ is coming back for us. We believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, that we will be together with him. And that's a fundamental of the faith. And that's an exciting thing to be able to do as a church together, to remember him, to act on our faith, to communicate our faith together, and to close this time, uh, as Paul did, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, brethren. Amen. Let me pray. We have confidently, at least in our actions, proclaimed your redeeming work in our lives, which 